0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Code Dark Finding Force Multipliers in Hospital Cybersecurity, a Health System CIMO Media Inc. production. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony guerra I'm the founder and editor in chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your questions and comments later in the program. You can send them in in the Q&A box, and we will look forward to that. Regarding our agenda, first, we're going to go about 30 minutes or so with our main presentation featuring Nate Lesser, VP and CISO at Children's National Hospital, and then we will have our audience Q&A. So without further delay, I'm going to turn it over to Nate Lesser. Nate, thanks so much for joining today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you and uh, I'm glad to be able to get this presentation in front of some of the folks who joined. Um, we did a lot of this at, at HIMSS this year uh, and received some great feedback. And at the end of the day, this is a um, description of something that we're doing in Children's National. I think it's applicable more broadly across the hospital community. And certainly it's something that's a work in progress. Like everything that we do in security, it's constantly being iterated on. And so we welcome your feedback and look forward to hearing from uh, folks who are are out there listening. So I hope we've got you on the call. Let's see if I am able to change slides. That would be, there we go. Uh, I see slight delay. So we got two. Um, We're going to talk about increasing attacks and the current attack surface and what we're we're seeing out there. And obviously, I think um, we have a pretty good participation from the hospital community on the webinar today. So I'm saying here a lot of things that other uh, hospital InfoSec professionals know, um, but it's important, I think, to highlight the challenges that we face and the extent to which our attackers are collaborating collaborating well, since that's the only way that we're gonna be able to um, respond in kind we're going to talk a little bit about the resource challenges. And so this sort of confluence of increasing attacks and, uh, the decreasing resources, um, and how that necessitates a real paradigm shift. How do we, how do we start thinking about, um, funding and, um, and resourcing our security capabilities differently? And then talk a little bit about Code Dark, um, which is something we built at, at Children's National and then, um, talk through some ways that I think you're going to be able to, to take that, hopefully make use of it, modify it, change it, and uh, and then please provide us feedback about what works and what doesn't. So starting from increasing attacks, you know, the kind of obligatory um, FUD slide, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, for those of you who spend time briefing boards of directors, you know, you know, these slides are important. It's how you grab people's attention. Um, but again, 12 years running, um, the Healthcare sector in the United States continues to be the most attacked uh, economic sector um, and uh, also has the highest cost of a data breach. Medical records are more valuable on the black market by, depending on the estimate, hundreds to thousands of times over something like credit cards or social security numbers alone. Um, and obviously, ransomware is like the 800 pound gorilla that we all fear when we uh, climb into bed at night. Um, So I think it's uh, extraordinarily challenging to continue to think about how do we uh, address both the commoditized attacks, which are improving. And, you know, I put these slides together, I went to HIMSS and then all anybody wanted to talk about was ChatGPT, right? It was all AI. It was all, it was all, and, and, and we hadn't even gotten up to the security implications in the last month. Um, the security community's uh, some combination of embracing uh, generative AI as a mechanism to improve our security operations work, and uh, what I would call sort of deathly fear of uh, the massively more sophisticated attacks that we're seeing because of uh, improved attack vectors that come from either generative AI being used as uh, improving to improve phishing lures and other social engineering attacks or generative AI being used directly in the design of um, exploits for zero day vulnerabilities or anything new that gets reported into the national vulnerability database it's really scary um so we have we have a lot of work and to do and that's you know I put this stuff together even before we started to, to think about um, that new set of capabilities that our attackers have. Um, but still, 94% increase in ransomware attacks um, year over year. 25% of all of those ransomware attacks have been targeted the healthcare sector. 289 ransomware attacks in hospitals in 2022. Um, these trends scare us. We also are starting to realize that there is and we can quantify the direct patient impact, right? Ransomware attacks when they uh, when a hospital falls victim to a ransomware attack, it doesn't just knock out back office IT systems. We're talking about the hospital's ability to operate. So I doubt any of this comes as a galloping shock. Um, to the folks in the audience here, although I will uh, note the sixty-seven percent there—that's a that's a really high number, right? When we think about it, sixty-seven percent on the previous slide of um hospitals pay the ransom. And these estimates range. Obviously, that's not a perfect one. I, that was based on um, one study, but uh, that was the Ponemon study. The that that's a pretty high number, and. Recognizing that hospitals, that that healthcare organizations are in a pretty challenging spot when it comes to ransomware, we're in a position of saying we can pay the ransom, which we think is the wrong thing to do. Like universally across the security community, we all think it's the wrong thing to do. But our choice is either pay the ransom or if we're not in a position to be able to recover quickly enough, you know, we it's not just lost revenues to our to our, uh health system, it's the uh direct impact to patient care. And that's a really tough challenge, which is why I think 67% may actually be conservative at the end of the day. Um I don't envy anyone who has been in that situation. I'm lucky to not have been. So far, but I will say uh, from a community perspective, from a public policy perspective, we are continuing to fund the next round of attacks. And so we really have to get out from under this question of do we pay the ransom because of the duration of time it will take for us to recover to putting our energy and money, not just into blocking those attacks and 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 predicting, you know, in the NIST framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Not just looking at identify, protect, detect, but how do we put some more energy into respond and recover? And that's part of what we're going to be talking about today too. Um, obviously, we still worry about everything beyond ransomware, social engineering that results in business email compromise, um, that results in in direct fraud. Um, There's still a tremendous amount of that. And of course, at the end of the day, data breach too. Um, KillNet is an interesting one, um, right? This is uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the relatively unsophisticated uh, attacks, uh, DDoS attacks. And our hospital uh, was a victim of of KillNet. Um, We were lucky in that we got new protections in place to protect our public facing website. Um, within, I think it was like 12 hours, um, but it was still an uh, entire community effort across the hospital. And uh, like other things, uh, you just the, you can't respond in a vacuum. Um, so those are protections we probably should have had in place ahead of time. Um, my guess is, like uh, a lot of others out there, um, I, I, that our experience is yet not unique. Um, as a CISO, you know, we're constantly battling uh, the lack of standardization, the legacy uh, systems and equipment that exists in our environment. And one of the best ways to get your hands around the problem is to build the coalitions that you need within your organization. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But first, you know, to highlight the other pillar of the problem, we're also we, we have volumes are up profitability is down and attacks are way up right so um hospital budgets are 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 going you know they're upside down they're going the wrong direction um we're uh in a position that often uh because of the nation- nationwide nursing shortage uh we pay more for the same labor and of course nursing being the for for any hospital the largest labor bucket and labor cost Um, so the security budgets are getting squeezed certainly depending on your organization you might be getting a little bit more money but if you look at that and then compare it to the information talent short the information security talent shortage we we have a real problem right so we're not able to pay as much as let's say financial services for great talent and if you the you the problem is compounded by the fact that even if we could pay for that talent there isn't enough out there right across all uh sectors in the economy we have uh something like 1.1 million a little over 1.1 million cybersecurity professionals yes. right that's in the entire uh this is US only that's across the United States um with to, as of this was, I think, March, um, there were 755,000 openings for cybersecurity professionals. That's close to two-thirds of the workforce that can walk out the door and have a new job waiting for them. Um, that puts us in a, a really tough spot. Um, and the numbers parallel that in, in healthcare, certainly, you know, with 44,000, over 44,000 job openings in information security and healthcare. So what does that mean? That means that we're competing for the best talent across the entire community. And we gotta figure out a way to come together to address these attacks where we're not just trying to hire more and more staff. Right, and that's where we get to this notion of a paradigm shift, right? So we have this expansive set of attacks We have dwindling resources. And even if we had all the money in the world, we don't have enough people to hire. The pipeline of cybersecurity talent can't keep up with our needs. And so whenever that happens in any industry, you have to start to look for ways to become more efficient uh, while simultaneously improving your capabilities, right? So some of those capabilities, efficiencies, uh, you can find in, in a variety of ways, right? So how does that break down? You look for automation, certainly. Um, or outsourcing kind of a hybrid staffing model. Um, And the area where I want to spend some time focusing is on collaboration, right? And what do those collaborations look like? There's external and internal collaborations. You can collaborate externally. I think in the US, we're still behind Europe and a number of other developed countries in terms of um, the, the structures through which we collaborate with law enforcement Um, to provide protection across critical infrastructure. And that's not to take anything away from the great work that's being done within DHS at CISA uh, or the FBI Cyber Crimes Unit. The the challenge there is simply we're a huge country and we've got a number of critical infrastructure sectors and we're sort of always behind the curve. Um, Not to mention, I don't know, of any for-profit or nonprofit organization that says voluntarily hey let's bring law enforcement in to sit within our perimeter on a persistent basis right so there's a, there's a lot in there that we've got to um, and there's some really great stuff happening through the American Hospital Association around uh, direct collaborations with the FBI. Um, there's an American Hospital Association um, cyber, I forgot what it's called right now, the cyber steering committee or something that John Rigby put together and, uh, and, and a number of hospitals. I think there are 35 of us, maybe in that group who are piloting FBI capabilities to share our logs, anonymize and then share our logs with FBI so they can run our logs against indicators of compromise in their environment so we can start to benefit from the national infrastructure around threat intelligence and data gathering. We haven't seen or I should say I haven't and children seen the results of that yet. We're just getting started with it, but we're pretty excited about that as one example of how to improve, um, increase our capacity without increasing our cost. That's a free, you know, uh, free to play activity. And uh, and I think it's going to be really valuable. I hope it will. Um, The other type of collaboration and the focus of the rest of our time is on internal, internally collaborating within your organization. So obviously, we think of that at its core in terms of training and awareness, right? How do we make sure that our staff are up to speed on the latest phishing threats, you know, running monthly phishing tests, those kinds of things, having some level of sort of annual training and awareness as a part of our uh, one thing hospitals are really good at is, is annual training for, you know, training for certification, um, whether that's a uh, compliance requirement, regulatory requirement, It's um, we're, we're good at that. The challenge there, of course, is that it's a little in, in one ear and out the other, right? Oh, okay, great. I sat through that hour of training. Maybe I heard something interesting. I clicked on a couple of things. I was checking my email at the same time. I got some work done while I was also getting credit for that training um but it doesn't have the pedagogical component of reinforcement so there's some work we need to do i think um and i know there there are resources out there i'm not an expert on this but it's something that um we're looking to improve on in this coming fiscal year at children's national is how do how do we make our training and awareness our outreach and engagement more robust across our staff um From a hospital operations perspective, there's some interesting stuff in terms of collaboration. And this is something I came into Children's National just three years ago and was new to the organization and and, uh, a new CISO in healthcare. And for me, one of the most important things was learning how the organization works, right? So you hear advice from anyone who, tells you anything about incident response. And it's always build an incident response plan and make sure that you have legal and communications and PR, all the components that you might not think of as a CISO. You think, oh, okay, I need security ops. Obviously i got those guys in the room and you know maybe I need some leadership component. I gotta get the IT guys on board because a lot of times these things are gonna affect systems or data center or storage or network. Um, but, uh, they, they, you know, fear that the community always had was you need to make sure that you bring the leaders from, you know, legal and from PR and communications and marketing and finance in too because they're going to have a role to play. Well, I found at at Children's National, and my suspicion is this is true everywhere else, um, the emergency preparedness team that I came in to meet with was outstanding. They had already put a tremendous amount of stuff in place. And there was no need for me to recreate any of that. So I got to build a new incident response plan around our existing crisis communications plans, our command center plans, all of which dealt with an all hazards approach to threats in the hospital, whether that's an active shooter or a missing kid or um, a medical emergency or a pandemic, um, by the way, all of which have a code attached to them, right? Code blue, code silver, code black, code pink, in our cases is, is, uh, relates to uh missing child. There are any number of, uh, unfortunately there's not a standard, a, a nationwide standard around codes, which we, we probably need that. And maybe I should be calling up my old colleagues at NIST and tell them to get working on that. But um, what there wasn't was a code for a cybersecurity and information security emergency that would necessitate bringing down our network. And that's where this notion behind Code Dark really came from. So talking about, whoops, I managed to skip ahead two slides. So talking about uh, integrated incident response, this is sort of what I mentioned initially, but we had a hospital-wide emergency operations plan and all the associated components regular daily check-ins with the uh, administrator on call and the teams across every unit and department Um, that all existed so when we said all right we need to build a new incident response policy incident response plan it became pretty easy to plug that into a structure that was already there and leverage the way the hospital already communicated Um, because of that we didn't a didn't have to recreate the wheel and b Got to communicate in the way that the hospital leadership already understood how to digest information Um, that allowed us, I think, to hit the ground running and make sort of cultural changes pretty quickly um, in an environment that isn't known hospitals aren't known for easy cultural change. The other piece that I think is important to highlight here is our business continuity plans. So that our emergency operations team had already been in the process of developing pretty detailed business continuity plans for each and every one of our business units and departments. That's a lot, right? That's, I think for us it was 45 individual business continuity plans. Um, And it's a lot of resources and it's a huge effort. Thankfully, I got to step into that and say, Hey guys, we also have to consider what a month of downtime looks like. You know, downtime can't just be four hours. It can't just be eight hours. What, what happens in your business continuity plans? What's your plan for a ransomware attack that takes the hospital out for two weeks? Right. If we have no IT services of any kind for the next two weeks, what does that look like? And how do you as the, you know, in, in the ED, how do you continue to receive patients? In the OR, how do you consider it continue to operate? How do you do, uh, you know, pre-operational prep? Uh, that's a question that everybody started looking at each other, and I have some funny anecdotes, right? Like, you talk to people, I, I make certain assumptions sometimes, I think we all do, about um, based on our own lens through which we see the world. One assumption I made was that people understood how network communications work. I mean, at the very high level, right? So, um, I assumed that our pharmacy team, who were responsible, who are responsible for Pixis machines, and we—that's—I I think that's actually a specific vendor, but medical dispensing units, uh, machines at every one of our units that have a uh, allow us to meet our our um, compliance obligations around controlled dispensing of medication. Um, they they have a downtime procedure that says if for some reason we lose the ability to log into that unit right so typically it's done with the badge and the badge is placed on the on the unit it logs that individual in and they can um the provider can get the you know right medication out if they lose the ability for to either log into the unit or for the unit to communicate back centrally to the pharmacy then they can put that unit into what's called downtime procedures, right? So where it will continue to operate and they have to, the the um, staff on the units are required to log manually all medication that's dispensed. Okay, that kind of makes sense, right? I asked the question of our pharmacy, how do we put those, all of those Pixis machines into downtime mode? And they said, oh, well, we send out the command centrally. And I said, okay. So now, how do you do it if we lose the network? And they said, well, we send out the command centrally. <laughs> and I said, okay, all right. We're talking past each other. <laughs> what happens when that command can't get to every one of the units across the hospital? And you know, in our case, we're talking about close to 60 sites, right? So it's how do you, how do you get it out to all of the sites across uh, across the tri-state area? and it's uh and and the the question becomes oh oh god i you know mm-hmm. now we have to really rethink this and 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 that was just one example but um that's the kind of continual communication and planning uh ahead of time that's really essential to make sure that uh that, that we can live through the kind of sustained attacks that we've seen uh, unfortunately a lot of the colleagues experience all right, so we created a, a plan that plugged into this, and that's when we you know, really started to think about this notion of Code Dark. And at the end of the day, Code Dark is about reminding our staff of their responsibilities to provide information security protection, right? They are in many ways, the frontline cyber first responders. But that doesn't tell everyone what they need to do. It only simply says what they that they have a responsibility. It's telling somebody they have a responsibility, but not providing them with the tools that truly empower them to make any kind of decisions is a bit of a disaster. Um, but it's not, it's not hard, right? We're not talking about something that is technically difficult. It just feels overwhelming, right? If you are a nurse on a unit, a very busy unit. And all of a sudden you get one of those ransomware screens on your laptop. The likelihood is that you're going to, you know, freak out and close it and walk away and say, I got a job to do and go back to work. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I I had a, uh, I actually had one of our, our VPs, a pretty senior guy within. Um, or the chief medical officer's uh, purview say to me, you know, if I ever see one of those screens, I'm throwing my laptop out the window. I mean, you haven't told me what else I should do, and that's all I know how to do. It's going right out the window. Um, and that me, it struck me as a perfectly reasonable response and, you know, helped us to define what it was that we needed to do. And, and, and so that's all nice. But Code Dark is really about addressing that fourth pillar, right? We talked about identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. The fourth and fifth pillars there. How do we respond to an attack, and how do we recover from it? How do we reduce the blast radius? Um, there have been some really great examples of attacks, uh, especially ransomware attacks, or any fast-moving malicious, um, uh, any, any fast-moving network-based malware um, where the the problem wasn't actually the upfront attack itself. It was the inordinate amount of time it took an organization to recover because they had to re-image every device in their environment before they could put declare it clean and then put it back on a new clean network um, and that can take weeks, it can take months. Um, that's really, really challenging. So how do we just say that's when we say blast radius, that's what we mean. How do we say? Well, if I could proactively bring down my network, right, certainly like a network kill switch is a co- an important centralized component of this, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to get that signal out if my network is compromised, right? So there's a challenge. kind of cart and horse thing there too, just like the med- medical medication dispensing uh, example. And uh, I don't know that if I can't bring the network down, how do I get devices off of it? And that's where we talk about empowering our staff, right? And so Code DARK is a really simple thing. Code Dark is a code that is called centrally. Um, you know, I should pass this. It's it's a um it's a it's a centrally called code where our staff are expected to do these four things, right? They they disconnect anything in their environment from the network. Now that that statement in and of itself may not resonate with someone who is. Uh, a clinical provider, or, you know, we have to provide a little more uh, clarity around that, but but disconnect devices from the network. If those devices haven't been compromised, we're able to bring them back on when we have a new clean network and we don't have to go re-image them. That saves us an inordinate amount of time and energy, right? So disconnect devices. That's that's the most important part of CodeDarn. Awaiting instructions, of course, from IT. Don't, don't bring something back on the network that you've taken off. And um, obviously reporting and following your uh, emergency policies and procedures and and your business continuity plan. But this at its core is a communications tool, right? We ensure that uh, we're empowering staff by giving them the information they need to take some action. Um, Disconnecting devices is actually not, we, we think of it in the information technology and the uh, information security worlds is pretty straightforward and simple but again you got to get down to that really nitty-gritty level of saying okay what does it mean to disconnect all right well i'm running a mac and here's how i go take turn off my wi-fi right that's my laptop that i turn off my way here's how i put my um my my windows machine into airplane mode but also um network connected devices are around us everywhere and it's not just our laptops right so it's educating our staff about oh you know it's those pixis machines i mentioned it's all of the, it's any hardwired um, medical device that communicates back inside the patient room and and it's important of course to when you're doing this to communicate with your biohead team and make sure that these are devices that you can take off the network without knocking them over or compromising patient care there's there, there is some challenge there uh, we we found that actually we didn't have any medical device in our environment. And we have a lot, tens of thousands of devices, um, that would, uh, that would fail or potentially compromise patient care if it lost a network connection. Now, m- my belief is anyone who's built a medical device that can't survive that, they should not have gotten FDA approval. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's worth checking and making sure that you're, you know, working with your biomed team. But also make sure your staff knows the difference between a network cable and a power cable. Right? It's it is not necessary. We we often make too many assumptions about what uh, that people's experience matches our own, and uh, and and so just going around and saying, oh no no no, that that you don't want to unplug that, but this one is what you do want to unplug. And the other piece from a communications perspective to kind of be really valuable was not just the uh, the badges that we showed a picture of before, but actually being able to go to every unit and we, we have stickers for Code Dark that sit um, that we that we place. I wonder if I hadn't. I don't have an example in front of me, but that we place on devices. We talked about waiting until an all clear, making sure you're communicating with your uh, with your leadership team. Um, and then, of course. Knowing what to do with your business continuity plan and uh, and procedures, and you know, as I said, at the end of the day, I am not entirely sure that we're going to save thousands of devices if we find ourselves in this scenario with we'll Code Dark. But what I am certain of is that our staff are better prepared and uh, better. Uh, and and much more confident than they were before we put this in place. So it's a fantastic, for us, it's been a fantastic communications tool. It's been a fantastic awareness and training tool. And there's great value in that even before we get to the question of whether this allows us to significantly improve or or I should say reduce our blast radius. Um, I think that's it for me. Yeah, look at that. Um, So if, I guess, Anthony, I'm going to hand this back over to you. Uh, there you
0: go. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent presentation, Nate. Um, great stuff in there. Um, I interview a lot of CISOs. Well, uh, let me just say, if anybody has any questions, uh, please send them in now and we'll get them in front of Nate. Um, I interview a lot of CISOs and uh, I focused a lot in different discussions on business continuity planning and disaster recovery. And, where you're getting to with a level of granularity is where I think people need to get to. Um, And one of the issues has been, one of the questions has been, what is the CISO's responsibility and role here? Um, Because you get to a point where it's sort of not your responsibility, right? It's not your job to figure out it's it's your job to tell them hey we might need to go to paper at some point and you guys need to know what to do at that point like I can't not can to explain to you how to go to paper but I want to make sure you understand you may have to go to paper maybe I want to let you know what it could look like in terms of the communication like what would the message look like from IT or IT security what might it say how much time might you have Okay, now that I've given you a scenario, you guys need to go figure this out. I can't do it for you. So one of my big high-level questions has been, what is the CISO's responsibility here? Where does it end? Where does it start? You know, Where is it influencing? Where is it directing? What are your thoughts there?
1: This is a great question, and that's a broad-ranging one, right? It's not an easy one to answer, but I guess I would say – it's my perspective. I think you know. you to have lots of CISOs on here. You'll probably get you ten sissos on. You'll probably get twenty answers. Um, it's my perspective that, to a large degree, the uh, it's all our responsibility, right? <laughs> we don't we don't get to say, ah, so now I've trained the staff and I'm going to abdicate responsibility for anything that they do wrong, right? Or I, you know, it's and 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 also even the notion of them doing something wrong, like we we have um uh, there's another thing that we built uh about reporting on our risk posture uh that we modeled after the work done by our colleagues in quality and safety so children's national had gone on a 10 year uh journey really to significantly improve you know just massively improve our safety and quality um looking at what are those leading indicators that directly affect patient outcomes, and how can we make changes and small changes that, that have big impacts? Um, but at the end of the day, they built a matrix that is a report reporting tool that they use. We took that, and we're still in year two of that similar, of a similar journey. But um, you know, we use the exact same communication tools, uh, and we report out on those those uh, those same kinds of indicators for our risk posture. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't it, it doesn't mean that we can sort of say, "Oh, OK, well, it's not it, it's the system's responsibility to make sure all of this happens. Um, and the the key is, I think, to empower our staff. Right. How do we if we want to say, hey, every frontline um, care delivery, every frontline provider in our environment is a cyber first responder. That's the only way that this kind of a thing works. And we have to give them the tools that they need in order to be able to understand and 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 take some some meaningful action. Um, so I think it's I, I I think this is one model. Um, like I said, it's uh, with all things, it's a it's a it's an iterative process, and it's certainly a work in progress. Um, and we we love and welcome the feedback uh, from from your audience about uh, what works and what doesn't, especially if they've had an opportunity to implement this or something
0: like it. All right, very good, we have an audience question. For extended network downtime, is there a contingency computer to view historical data such as last dose of meds?
1: It's a great question. And I, I, so in our environment, we have something called 24 seven machines, um, the, the The issue with those is that um, they are always, uh, I think usually a day out of date, right? So, And they have a finite capacity. Um, additionally, if you, you, if you can't put, you have to put them on the network in order to get the, um, you know, charts updated, but then you have to take them off the network so they don't get compromised. So, um, the, uh, from my perspective, actually the biggest, uh, value, the biggest sort of bang for our buck, um, and i uh, sorry, I should take a step back. So we looked at those, we have them. I'm not sure that they're, uh, they get us as far as we need them to, um, we have um in our case our our um emr is off-site we we connect to it remotely so we also have looked at um and and have in our environment a set of uh literally literally a set of commercial wireless hotspots um if our network is compromised we have a, a completely different uh approach to get access to our emr from a completely clean cache of devices so we actually do have a cache of devices that we keep off our network um the challenge is of course you know your it team has to make sure that they you know once a week they update and patch those devices uh, as part of the regular patch cycle even though they're not they're otherwise turned off and locked in a cabinet um, but we can pull those out we can connect to a hotspot we can get into our emr um what Even with all of that, we have to put in place unit by unit procedures. This all comes back to the business continuity plan around if we're moving to paper charts, you know, how do we print the latest chart as quickly as possible? How do we make sure we have some offline network, a network, uh, off network printers? Right. Um, Almost nobody has off network printers anymore. Everything's network. Um, So there's just there's there's a tremendous amount of detail that you have to think through and a lot of that happens through your business continuity plans. And then the last thing I'll say which I think connects both to this question and to your your previous one Anthony is exercises are absolutely essential. We've run a, a bunch of them now we, we're actually uh, continuing to ramp up the efforts that we have around exercises and those are exercises, table tops we haven't gotten to live fire exercises but that's actually on my, my hit list for this year. Um, with the units. You know, so we go to radiology and we say, okay, we're going to run a mm-hmm. uh, extended network downtime uh, uh, exercise and work with the team there to think through. And that's where you get to this level of detail. Oh, we said we were going to do paper charts and we thought it through and we kind of figured out what we need in order to operate for weeks on end without IT, but nobody thought, hey, do we have enough paper? Mm. How are we? Like we said, we're going to go to paper charts. Do we? Do we have a you know, conference room full of reams of paper, or how do we get paper supplies? You know, brought in immediately. We need them. Um, It's amazing the level of detail you can get to where you realize, oh, that's that's the real gotcha.
0: So you talk about uh, number one is like engaging with these departments, like radiology. I mean, do I would imagine sometimes you run into the situation where hey, uh, can't do it right now, got a lot going on, come back, we can't do it right now. And, you, well, then you come back, we can't do it right now. Do you ever not get the engagement that you're looking for to vet it and make sure they're ready? So that's one question. And then secondly, if they do come up with a plan, who who is the one who's supposed to review it and realize that, hey, you guys have nothing in here about your paper supplies, your printer ink, Um, You know, you might want to add that in here. Is anybody reviewing the plan that they come up with to try and catch things that are commonly commonly missing?
1: So, two good questions, right? Uh, I'll take them in order. The first one: it it has been my experience that we get really, really good engagement from our our units, but that's a very top down driven thing, right? So, I I came into an environment empowered with really strong engagement from our board of directors um, and and very strong support from our executive leadership so working with the our our ceo and the evps across the hospital um, they made this a priority both the information security improvements that we've made And the business continuity planning and they've, uh, and I don't know if this is a children's national specific thing. I suspect it's not. We end up with, you know, a steering committee for everything. There's like thousands of these steering committees. Um, but (laughs) we, uh, but we have a business continuity planning steering committee and it has enough leadership engagement and, um, and, and, and presence that. Um, no, we don't. This is, so that's where all of the business continuity plans get reviewed um, and there is, you know, gets reported out. We our leadership council, which is the, I don't know, 30, 40 um, senior executives in the hospital uh, all get regular briefings on our uh, efforts toward business continuity planning and our and our uh, our cybersecurity risk posture in general. Um, and that allows us to, I think, have the top-down support that we need. And it hasn't been an issue for us getting engagement from our business units or, or hospital units, departments and units.
0: Good. So if someone's having trouble with that engagement, uh, it's probably an issue that they need more executive support and influence. and And the departments need to know this is not something that you really can continually be busy, too busy to do. That's not acceptable.
1: Yeah, I think that's, it is really important to set that tone. It helps to set it up front so that it's not a response to somebody being intractable, I think. Right. Um, and I will say it hasn't stopped. You know, I've certainly had one-on-one conversations with providers, uh, you know, some of them might be nearing retirement. And I said, well, you know, we got to do it this way because it, you, we don't want to be in a position where, you know, we can't do electronic charting for a month. And I've heard the response, oh, that'd be great. Let's do that. Right. Oh, you know, boy. let's go back yeah. to paper. Right. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, that's not the, that's not the common response.
0: Right. So they want to go back to paper and then you've got many, many younger uh, practitioners who would have no clue how to go to paper and would be horrified to go to paper, right?
1: The vast majority, the vast majority of, of our providers are in a position where there's the notion of uh, downtime paper charting is is, it's frightening.
0: Yeah, it's inconceivable. Uh, um, so I think what you're doing is extremely interesting and, and very worthwhile in terms of, um, just giving, uh, everyone a, a roadmap ahead of time for what to do if something goes wrong and not hoping that they come up with it on their own and figure it out on their own. Um, so, you know, people put a lot of money into prevention, detection, things like that. And what, what this is about quite a bit is recovery. And so you've looked at recovery and you've said, what, What is the biggest problem to recovery? And from what I understand, what you've said, it's re-imaging the devices can take a tremendous amount of time. So what you're trying to do is put that at a minimum, right? So let's see, how do we minimize the amount of devices we have to re-image? And we do that by teaching people how to disconnect. Right, because I'm assuming, and you can explain more if you disconnect with a certain period of time or before certain things happen, that device we know it's safe, we know it's good, right? We don't have to re image it because we know you can disconnect it in time. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's I, we, I don't think we can measure the time and know that it's clean, we can test it and make sure it's clean when we um. But yes, I, I, look, this is the, the, the entire notion here is based on a theory of speed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and, you know, I, I reuse this phrase cause I like it, but, but reducing the blast radius, yeah. um, is you made a statement on, uh, that I, I think I agree with I'm not sure though, that, that, the the most significant piece of a recovery is re-imaging devices, um. I, to be to be candid, I'm not sure, but I know it's a huge time suck, mm-hmm. right? So like, there are some really well documented use cases. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Merck, the uh, shipping company. Yeah, that, they think it was WannaCry that that took them down, and they had something like 200,000 laptops they had to reimage, mm-hmm. and they you know they took over these massive warehouses and had people walking through with their laptops and dropping them off and picking them up the mm-hmm. next day. But if you can think of, you know, imagine the resources it takes to do that, to, and and so there are other ways that we can expand on these these concepts, right? We're we're talking with, and unfortunately, this is uh, you know still in its early stages, but we're talking with other hospitals in our region about the possibility of having some kind of a mutual assurance uh, pact. So effectively saying, if Uh, a hospital in Northern Virginia has a ransomware attack. I can pre-stage a couple of people on my team who can show up and help out, Mm. right? uh, The concept is kind of built on the notion of um, what we see with line workers in the electric power industry, right? If there's a major disaster that hits one region, then uh, line workers from across the country will will fly in and start helping out, Right. right? Similarly... Um, I think at, at least at a regional level, we should be looking for ways to make it easier when any one of us is in the position of needing to recover from one of these attacks. It often is a very manual, uh, resource-intensive activity, and we all have a little extra capacity on our teams. We can we can come in and help out, right? There's no reason that that I can't send two or three folks from my team down to help them out, and vice versa if we're in a if we're in a similar situation. Um, the legal folks have a lot to say about that. Um, <laughs> so helps, I think to start thinking about it before it's how you, you, know, if I, if I'm asking a hospital to send me two folks to, they, are logging into our systems. They've had, like, there are a whole bunch of questions. Uh, by the time we get through the compliance, legal and regulatory requirements, we'll, we, we will be done. Um, yeah. but if I, if I can pre-stage all of that and sign some oh, kind yeah. of an then, uh, I think. You know, we've been in a lot better shape.
0: So it's interesting you, you talk about some sort of a regional approach to uh, to helping each other out. There was a study a couple weeks ago came out at a UC San Diego, and they studied a hospital that was affected by ransomware. And they actually studied the surrounding hospitals too, and they talked about the over the overflow of patients when they had to be redirected and so the regional impact to other hospitals when one hospital is hit with a ransomware attack so but that seems to me that that impact would be on the clinical side right because they're getting patients from that hospital, so there's a clinical impact on the other hospitals to take care of patients that doesn't Create any problem in my mind with your scenario of sharing cybersecurity resources, right? But you could see the clinical impact. So it's kind of it's impacting the region in different ways. You can send people to help them on a cyber front, um, but you, you know the other hospitals have to sort of step up with that additional patient flow. It's interesting.
1: I think I mean it's a very good point. I think if anything, it helps us bring the regional care delivery capacity back online faster so yeah is there is there an impact or a a, a corollary between patient volume increases and the work on my team there certainly is on it in general information Mm -hmm. security i think less so maybe a little bit Mm -hmm. Um, but the reality is definitely uh my resources my especially security ops like if i can send two folks over there they're better um their their energies are better spent bringing that other ha- hospital back online and giving us uh some relief from a, a regional uh, clinical volume perspective
0: well, it's really fascinating that approach that you're taking to supporting you know to see if you could work it out well, ahead of time i think idea. It, i want to say i, I like the yeah. idea
1: i haven't uh right I, we can have it back on after we put it in place and and i'll talk more about how we did it
0: no, totally understood that it's in the works and may or may not work out. But as a concept, I think it's really interesting, you know, so very cool. Um, You know, your reaction you mentioned about somebody throwing the laptop out the window, you know, it's, it makes perfect sense. That would be my reaction, right? So my reaction, my reaction would be a little different, right? And I think this would be a lot of people's reactions. You see something on your, or, or let's say you clicked on something, right? You clicked on something. And, oh, you see something bad or bad things start to happen on your computer and you go, oh boy, oh boy. The the instinct there is of fear and panic. It's shut my computer, maybe shut it off, go to lunch. I'm going to go away. I'm going to pretend this never happened. I'll come back and maybe everything will be okay. But to your point, that's it's a time issue. So this is exactly the opposite reaction we need from an IT security point of view. We can't have you do that because if you didn't shut it off in time, they're in and you're not telling anybody, which means nobody's yeah. on the case. So that's the worst case scenario. So what you're doing is to try and tell people ahead of time, that's wrong. But the other message that I would wonder if you wouldn't want to con- you would want to convey with this is if you do the right thing, let's say you've clicked on the wrong thing, but you do the right thing, you're not going to get in trouble. Take that that's off right. the table. So it's like, no, just it's tell it. someone.
1: I think it's actually more than that. So I mentioned the example of safety and quality that we that, that we worked on at, uh, even before my time, but that, you know, the hospital went through this major journey. And um, a big piece of that was setting a, a, a uh, corporate level goal. And there was there was one year where they had a corporate level goal of reporting 10,000 safety incidents similar to to an information security incident people have a tendency to say ooh somebody spilled something here and 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 someone on my team slipped but i caught them and and so and we cleaned it up and nobody has to know about it right mm-hmm. well we had a goal of a corporate wide goal of uh getting so many safety reports that we became a culture obsessed with safety and quality similarly we're looking for uh, it may not be a corporate-wide goal, but, but that's the ethos that we're talking about. Make it a, wait, you reported this thing? That's fantastic, mm-hmm. right? You put mm-hmm. on that thing? Thanks for telling us. Yeah. This is the, right? It's not just you're not going to get slapped on the wrist. It's you're going to be rewarded for letting us know.
0: I think that's just brilliant if you can create that ethos. Um we're almost out of time, Nate. I wonder if you had a final thought, final takeaway. Usually, the way I couch this is to ask you for your best piece of advice for someone in a CISO role at a comparable health system, comparable size, some, somebody kind of doing what you do in your environment. What's your best piece of advice for them, based on your experience and you know what you've gone through?
1: I, I appreciate that. I guess I, I I will share one piece of advice, which is you know learn about what your peers are doing uh, across different departments and steal from them <laughs> tell them you are and borrow the work they've done and that way you're you know plugging into a system that exists well um but i would turn it around even and say look i i feel like we're we are all uh in this together working really hard to try and uh defeat very sophisticated and uh diligent attackers so i would ask if you've got good advice please share it you know if you're willing to spend a little time looking at the work that we've done and able to provide some feedback uh we're 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 exceptionally grateful for that and you know we look forward to finding better ways to collaborate with the entire community
0: wow that was incredible i think there's so much in there of really stuff i haven't heard a lot about before new stuff interesting stuff concepts so nate i really appreciate you sharing this Um, regarding continuing education. You'll be able to use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming webinars with that. I want to thank our tremendous speaker, Nate Lesser for taking his time and sharing this great stuff. Um, And I want to thank you, our attendees for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. you.